Hi, and welcome back to What Remains. I'm your host, MK. This episode, I'll be looking more broadly at mortuary industries, how COVID has impacted them, and how these issues reflect the flaws in institutions that are supposed to aid vital death care industries during disasters like this. I'll also be talking about death activism as it relates to addressing issues of death inequality. Initially, I plan to have a whole separate episode on death activism, but it's really difficult to talk about what's happening now with the pandemic without talking about the structural issues that led to here and what we should be doing to fix them. In March of 2020, just a matter of days before lockdown went into place, I interviewed Carl Eggleston. Mr. Eggleston is the founder and president of Oliver and Eggleston Funeral Establishment, located in Farmville, Virginia. I sought to discuss his unique drive-through funeral practice, a type of viewing option in which the casket bearing the deceased is placed behind a floor-to-ceiling window so that mourners can drive up to pay their respects. Because of the timing, we spoke about how he foresaw the impact of COVID on his industry and his town. Even before lockdown had begun, he worried for the survival of family-owned businesses in such a small town, including his own. Mr. Eggleston had said that even then, he had noticed fewer people attending the most recent funerals he'd put on. Less than half the expected attendees showed to the funeral held the Friday prior to our interview, and visitations had been steadily dropping off. He said that he worried that people would be attending funerals less and less, and in addition to the impact on small funeral businesses, he also worried that people wouldn't be able to adequately mourn their loved ones and process their grief. Mr. Eggleston did note, however, that his drive through funeral option, as well as his then-revolutionary and now fairly commonplace offering of remote livestream funeral services, would be an ideal way of managing funerals during a pandemic. In addition to the potential impact on their businesses, funeral home directors and employees are at an increased risk of infection because bodies frequently need to be collected from COVID hotspots like hospitals and nursing homes. Concerns for the mental health of workers in these fields has also come up. His previous studies have indicated that an increased number of bodies they have to work on during mass fatality events have a marked negative impact on funeral directors' mental well-being. And on top of that, individual states determine if death care workers are considered health care workers when it comes to vaccine access and other COVID precautions. Even further down the line, this backup in mortuary services is impacting transplantation, research, and medical training dependent on donated bodies. This overburdening of funeral homes, crematoriums, and coroner's offices means families have few options in what happens to their loved ones. And with men no longer having the choice to make these donations, supplies for organs for transplantation and bodies for medical schools and research institutes are declining. As of May, organ transplantations from deceased donors fell 50% in the U.S. and 91% in France due to the increased difficulty in procuring the donor organs. During my interview with Dr. Lee Meadows Jantz at the Forensic Anthropology Center, she discussed concerns about processing and researching with COVID positive remains. The center halted acceptance of any non cremated remains from March until July of 2020, and they still require post mortem COVID testing for all bodies they accept. Dr. Meadows Jantz told me that typically bodies are turned away or need to be cremated due to their infectious disease status when they carry a bloodborne pathogen that vaccines aren't available for. She noted that they do accept bodies that test positive for hepatitis A and B because a vaccine exists for these diseases, but non-cremated bodies with hepatitis C have to be rejected because there is no vaccine. Similarly with COVID, until 
herd immunity through vaccination is achieved. All bodies that test positive can only be used after first being cremated. And even when COVID is no longer a widespread concern, there's still no telling whether the center will be able to accept whole remains of those facing COVID's post-viral syndrome. Dr. Meadows-Jans emphasized that the University of Tennessee's body donation program regularly receives more donation requests than they truly need, having to turn away many bodies each year, and that the Forensic Anthropology Center isn't likely to see their research impacted by new restrictions due to COVID. However, medical schools and research facilities that rely on whole body donations and can't make use of cremated remains are likely to see their studies impacted. In a letter to the editor published in the Journal for the Association of American Medical Colleges, anatomy professor Scott Pearson expressed his concern for the future of medicine when so many physicians in training will be lacking hands-on experience with cadavers. Pearson says, quote, What is less apparent now but will, I believe, become manifest later during the transition from student to physician is the loss of teaching and learning moments that occur daily in the anatomy lab. We view with too narrow a lens of what happens in the anatomy lab during the first year of medical school. The gross anatomy experience is much more than dissecting and learning muscles, nerves, and arteries. It's about care. Care for the individual, one person at a time. I believe these lessons start on the first day with the unveiling of the donor body and the careful turning, examining, and rewrapping." End quote. Alternatives like 3D models or virtual dissections have been utilized during the pandemic, but many like Pearson fear that vital lessons about compassion for the person the donor was and gratitude for their donation can't be conveyed through these means. With more than 30 million estimated infections in the U.S. as of February, and an estimated 50 to 80 percent of people having symptoms persist past three months, it's impossible to know just yet how deep an impact this pandemic will have on research and educational practices that depend on these body donations. In response to the impact on death-related fields in the U.S., Caitlin Doty spoke out about the government's role in this disaster. Caitlin is a funeral home director, mortician, YouTuber, and prominent death activist. Her funeral home in Los Angeles is one of many being hit hard by the sudden influx of bodies and slowed down by increased safety precautions. In a pair of YouTube videos entitled, Our Funeral Home is Overwhelmed with Bodies and Have Deaths Slowed Down in Los Angeles, she details how LA funeral homes are struggling to process their bodies and what steps she and other death activists are pushing our government to take in order to alleviate their burden. In the first of her videos on the subject from January 28th of this year, Caitlin says that her small funeral home in LA was faring pretty well during most of the pandemic, but since this winter, California COVID deaths have spiked, leaving hers and other funeral homes all over the state inundated with bodies that they cannot process fast enough. She points out that this isn't just an issue of overloaded funeral home staff, but often a dire nightmare scenario for many of LA's most vulnerable people. She says, quote, If your vision of LA is TikTok houses and paparazzi, that is not the LA I live in or the LA my funeral home serves. There are vast stretches of Los Angeles that are primarily home to Latino and Black people. These communities are filled with frontline workers who live in densely situated multi generational homes, many of which are low income. They can't not work or work from home and they can't just live somewhere else. These are the people who are filling our funeral homes. To put a face on this, there was a bus driver living in South LA who migrated from El Salvador. He lived with his mother and children. 
The family doesn't know how COVID infected their home, but the whole family has it. COVID has put him on the brink of death, and he doesn't have health care. Calling an ambulance would just mean driving around in circles. They have nowhere to go, no hospital to take him to. You hear the sirens all night long, so he dies at home. A police officer has to come sit with the body until a funeral home picks him up, but no funeral home has room. This is not a home funeral, by the way, the magic of a body in the living room, the family making an informed choice to care for their own dead. There is no magic when you have no idea if you are going to be able to get anyone, no matter how much you pay them, to pick up a body. End quote. She points to travel for the holidays, rolling back of lockdown regulations, and the privatization of mortuary and death care industries, even during a natural disaster, as the root of this issue. But she also emphasizes how much the government could be doing right now to alleviate this too, and that an array of structural issues are at play here. Quote, the fact that the government feels no need to step in at all is so frustrating, especially since they killed a lot of these people with their arbitrary policies, their lack of health care, their lack of financial help for the unemployed. And then you do absolutely nothing to help them and their families once they die. You don't provide any money to get them cremated or buried. You don't even provide refrigerated storage for their bodies so their families at least know they're somewhere safe. Things like refrigerated trucks, communal burials, mobile crematoriums, those aren't the enemy. They're the solutions. My issue is we don't have any of those. End quote. Capitalism, Caitlin explains, is the government's preferred solution to this issue, and politicians push privately owned funeral homes to step up and benefit financially from the spike in deaths. But with no capacity left, skilled professionals overworked, and cremation facilities backed up with several months' worth of remains to process, that's physically impossible. Of what can be done, Caitlin says, quote, There should be one phone number. If a death has occurred from COVID or suspected COVID, the family can call the number and it goes to a central command, an abandoned WeWork or something with tumbleweeds rolling through the background. To start, it's staffed by about 30 people, FEMA or Federal Emergency Management, California National Guard, and death care experts, drivers, phone operators. The phone operator takes all the information from the family. A driver picks up the body and brings it to a well-managed location that is clean, bright, cold, well-labeled, so the family knows their dead are safe. The death certificate is fast-tracked through the county, and the family is told, we're sorry this is happening. We will handle the practical and financial logistics of this cremation or burial. This should have been the plan since the beginning of the pandemic. If the right person was given the power, and I don't know, a million dollars, half a million dollars, this could be up and running in several days, end quote. In her second video on February 18th, she follows up on how LA's funeral homes are managing and what came of her previous video. She notes that cases are falling, but there's a lag between new cases and deaths, and that spikes may come out of upcoming gatherings from events and holidays. And new Southern California variants of the virus may bring in their own new waves of deaths. So while things are a bit more organized at her funeral home, they're still taking on five times their average number of bodies and turning away at least half of the calls they receive because they have no room. Caitlin says that with her platform as a YouTuber and activist, she's been able to speak with organizations like the California Emergency Management Agency and DMORT, or Disaster Mortuary Operational Response Team. 
the latter of which has been activated in California since her first video, but like with New York City last year, they're stationed in coroner's offices and unable to help funeral homes or families. A more positive move has been the inclusion of funeral costs for families in the $2 billion FEMA bills that passed in February, though Caitlin says that she hopes these funds are accessible and equitable because they historically haven't been in mass fatality relief funding. Caitlin notes that the people most capable of bringing about solutions to mortuary backups and exorbitant funeral costs are the ones most responsible for the deaths in the first place. Implementing these changes would be tantamount to accepting blame, and the government officials involved are unlikely to do so, even when that means furthering the trauma people face losing loved ones and skyrocketing funeral costs by thousands of dollars. Caitlin further says that a number of the people most capable of helping now mass fatality experts have reached out to her to say that they have plans set in place to manage these sorts of incidents and have been attempting to work with governments to set them in motion but have been ignored at every turn. She also discusses a 2005 LA Times article by Josh Mayer called Irony of Body Recovery Woes, There Was a Plan, about Hurricane Katrina's mortuary plan, which seemed well thought out but fell apart instantly because no one could agree on who was assigned to collect the bodies. Mayer says that the weak link in the plan was expecting local parishes in Louisiana to take care of picking up bodies, but within hours of the hurricane making landfall in New Orleans and surrounding areas, coroner's offices, morgues, and funeral homes homes were too overwhelmed with flooding and power outages to be of any help. Failing to get any federal disaster management agencies to begin collection, federal officials hired Kenyon, a private disaster management firm. Poor communication sent Kenyon's mobile morgue to Louisiana, then redirected them to Houston and then back to Louisiana, all without collecting any bodies. By the time Kenyon was able to begin working, DeMort and the Army's Special Mortuary Unit had begun collection, and with all three agencies working independently, they began searching the same neighborhoods, leaving others completely untouched. It took over a week to begin the collection of bodies, and by then floodwaters had hit, which, coupled with the slowdown from miscommunication, meant that numerous bodies were left for weeks following the hurricane. Advanced decomposition, the elements, and scavengers made body identification significantly more difficult and left families wondering what became of their missing loved ones. Caitlin's key takeaway from Katrina's body collection failure is that, quote, having plans in place at the federal and state level for mass death may lull officials into a false sense of security and lead to even more shocking failures. The plans don't help if you don't do the plan, or admit that you need to do the plan because you don't want to admit that you're the kind of place that needs the plan, end quote. Ultimately, the issues impacting mortuary industries during COVID and other mass fatality events are indicative of deeply rooted structural issues in how medical and financial facets of death care are managed in the U.S. In topics of body donation, the same issues crop up. Marginalized groups are most targeted by lack of regulation. Poor working class citizens have less access to adequate mortuary care. A lack of any sort of central regulating body creates dangerous and unhealthy environments in these fields. And the push for small-time capitalism to serve communities where governments should creates space for unethical or illegal cutting of corners. This centering of capitalism in an industry that should value compassion and health has deep impacts on inequality, wealth disparity, and health care as a whole. I want to thank all of you who have listened to this project. COVID has certainly made this a difficult process, but I'm glad I was able to do this in a format that will hopefully be more accessible for others to engage with. 
I especially want to thank my advisor, Adrian Pine, and my second reader, Dan Sayers, for their guidance on this project, and Dr. Lee Matos Jantz for speaking with me about her work. I also want to express my gratitude to my speech therapist, Patty, my lovely friend, Ruby, and my dad, Charlie, for their support through this process. If you're interested in learning more about death activism, death planning, and body donations, I have resources available on my website. I've compiled a few articles on how to start thinking about death positivity and death planning, some of my favorite eco-friendly burial and body processing options, other body farms looking for donations, and some general information on some of the topics covered. The website for The Order of the Good Death, which was founded by Caitlin Doty, is an amazing resource for any and all death-related questions that you may have, and is very beginner-friendly, so you don't need to have any background in the subject to understand their activism work. Thank you again so much for taking the time to listen to my research. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>